Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... Cumulative impacts of the fracking industry across our country as they explore and explore and explore will be felt and we need absolute scrutiny. The NT government is facing criticism following a delayed response to fish kill in the Beedaloo Basin. Also, a recent review of the migration system last year found that for some skilled trades it can cost $9,000 and up to 18 months to get their qualifications recognised. Experts suggest Australia should focus on attracting migrant construction workers in the current housing crisis. And later today... We've known for a while that government support for community broadcasting has been underfunded. This year we've brought our sector together and we're putting in a a substantial ask this year. With the next federal budget set to be announced this May, we speak to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia about the importance of increased funding. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, last week, opposition leader Peter Dutton promised to defund the Environmental Defenders Office if the coalition wins next year's federal election. The EDO is an environmental legal centre running litigation and offering legal support in climate change and environment cases. The election promise follows recent criticism of the EDO's conduct in court regarding witness coaching, and according to Dutton, the EDO is preventing new projects from developing. The wise contributor from River FM, Sean O'Shaughnessy, spoke with independent MP Zali Stegall about how this promise might play out for Dutton electorally. I think this is the leader of the opposition playing to his party donors of fossil fuel industry uh, really looking at stamping out any objections or any um, you know avenue or assistance to get to the courts to actually make sure due process and you know communities that have the opportunity to be heard and object to projects that will impact them so no I strongly support the funding of EDO I you know I appreciate sometimes certain case cases are not run as they should but overall it's a very essential part of a robust process of assessing the merit of applications and projects and assessing their impact on our environment and nature. Dutton made his comments to a fairly select audience at the Chamber of Minerals and Energy in Perth. Do you think he might have uh, an agenda aside from appealing to voters there? <laughs> well, I, I think um, it's not just about voters. I think it's more it shows clearly where his priorities are. He is very focused on preserving the rights and, you know, continuing uh, with fossil fuels and just at the complete disregard of the safety of our communities and our, our well-being due to climate change impacts from the fossil fuel industry. So there are very few ways in which damaging projects can be halted and or questioned. And uh, clearly that avenue through, uh, I guess, climate litigation is an avenue that 
is effective in at least delaying sometimes, but also putting the pressure on projects to really justify their approval, putting pressure on governments around that approval system. He's uh, he's used the term lawfare uh, to describe uh, the, the activities of the community using legal means. Slightly ironically... I- Uh, Yes, look, I think it is holding on to every means possible to limit that questioning and that, you know, that process. I guess there's just been such a dominance by the fossil fuel industry and such a monopoly over government. And we know they are big, you know, donors to both major parties. There's huge amount of influence. There's a revolving door from policy advisors and politicians back to the industry. And so I, I think it's really important to make sure as a democratic country we have robust laws to ensure proper checks and balances in relation to projects. And and you are, as I say, a lawyer and, and an MP. Do you think our legal system unfairly favours small community groups over multinational mining companies? <laughs> Oh, that's very tongue-in-cheek. Yes, no, we know that mining companies, fossil fuels, have very deep pockets, have been able to, you know, I think really override community wishes and interests for far too long. We don't yet have a, I think, robust enough laws to protect the environment and give voice to concern. So um, I think... uh, Funding of the EDO is essential. There's these big picture questions about, um, uh, you know, equity of access to justice. You know, to, it's it's not a justice system if if uh, it's not equitable, is is it? I mean, how does that, you know, work into the the broad questions of you know being a functional democracy in your view? Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's really essential that there is that equitable access to justice and to the courts, and an ability to really scrutinise decisions of government in granting approvals and also the merit of those approvals as against the projects and their impacts um, and whether or not the, the laws have been you know, duly applied by the government of the day. So um, that uh, equitable access to, um, to, the, to justice is incredibly important. Mm. Are there other big agenda items on your, uh, you know, coming up this year for you? What's what's on your calendar coming up? Well, well, look, this is going to be a key year that will set the tone for the 2025 federal election. And we need to be mindful that uh, in 2025, Australia will be due to lodge its next nationally determined contribution under the Paris Agreement. So we absolutely need to accelerate our ambitions. So I'm very much pushing for the government to commit to a floor of 75% emissions reduction by 2035. Um, Of course, it's important to remember the Labor government, whilst better than the coalition, is not yet ambitious enough when it comes to emissions reduction and will not be ambitious in the absence of being pushed by the community. That was independent MP Zali Stegall speaking with River FM's Sean O'Shaughnessy. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. The Northern Territory government is being questioned on their ability to respond to natural disasters following reports of a mass fish kill in Newcastle waters south of Catherine. The Northern Territory EPA were notified of hundreds of dead and dying fish on January 15 but didn't attend the site until four days later. 
Samantha Phelan is a Catherine-based vet and founder of environmental group Protect Big Rivers. Phelan was the first to notify the EPA after receiving a call from traditional owners concerned about the dying fish. So I contacted the EPA and asked them if they were able to attend and they directed me by email to a fish kill hotline which took me to a phone number in Heidelberg in Victoria where a guy took details at sort of five o'clock in the afternoon. I had had a feeling that the response would be slow and had begun to instigate other pathways of potential sampling. So the traditional owner also had a relationship with federal government biosecurity and he contacted them wondering if they could pursue it, which they did. They went down and collected samples. You said you expected it to be slow. How long did it take to get the response that you were looking for? From the Northern Territory Government, there was an email response from EPA on the first day. The second day, somebody from NT Fisheries contacted me um, and I asked if they could attend that day and they said they didn't have capacity to attend that day. And then, yeah, the department got down there on the Friday, so five days later. By that stage, like you've got to understand this is a, a system that is now in full flood. So when we were first notified, the, the water had started moving, you know, there was a stream. By the time they got down there, the crossing was closed, the highway closed within hours of them being there. There was a massive volume of water and that highway stayed closed for two or three days. There was a huge volume of water going through that. The flushing of anything that you would want to be finding had probably occurred by the time they were there and that's the problem. What does this say about the government's ability to respond or even to monitor something like this when when you or other community members are the most concerned and are really the drivers for, you know, getting all the appropriate measures to get it checked? It's really concerning. What's also concerning is that any time I ask for results, their testing results, I'm told I have to FOI them. So I've requested these results again. I haven't had a negative response yet, but I've just had no response. Now I've seen federal government results from from their testing and there are heavy metals in the water. There were some problems with the, the nature of the test, so it needs to be unpacked more. And I think it's important to say we're not saying this is definitely from fracking. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is there is suspicion of a point source of contamination. So copper, lead, zinc were all increased. There's a suspicion that there may be a point source. Now, that could be batteries further upstream, car batteries dumped in the creek. We We don't know what that is. But what we do know is there was a significant contamination event further upstream by a fracking company that was they were fined for it um, on a well pad in September 2022. We also know that this fish kill site is directly downstream from that operation. You're unsure of the cause at, at this very, very moment, even if, you know, something were to happen similarly in the future. Obviously, the response is not adequate. No, I think the minute EPA are notified of a fish kill in this area, particularly in Newcastle Creek, because all water from the majority of fracking operations ends up in Newcastle Creek. This is people's food sources, it's people's drinking water. Ultimately, it's our Roper River flow, it's our iconic river flow because it goes underground and then feeds underground to our great rivers. If there is 
any whisper of something happening in Newcastle Creek, it's completely unacceptable that the EPA's pollution hotline isn't there within 24 hours. Cumulative impacts of the fracking industry across our country as they explore and explore and explore will be felt and we need absolute scrutiny. That was Catherine Veterinarian and founder of Protect Big Rivers, Dr Samantha Phelan. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM. To our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio. And to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. In the current housing crisis, experts suggest Australia should focus on attracting more skilled migrant construction workers to aid in the effort of building more homes. Although migration figures have surged to a record high, the amount of migrants choosing to work in the construction industry remains low. The Wire's Tony Pankalewick spoke with Trent Wiltshire, Deputy Program Director of Migration and Labour Markets at the Grattan Institute, about potential reforms and the issues facing migrant construction workers. The crisis in the rental sector that we're facing at the moment, you know, we've got rents skyrocketing, vacancy rates around record lows. We're really not bringing in enough construction workers. We've dug into the data and we can see that construction workers as migrants make up a smaller proportion of the population compared to the overall labour force. So about 32% of Australian workers were foreign-born, but only 24% of workers in construction were born overseas. And that's even the same for when you're looking at migrants that have arrived more recently as well. And with attracting skilled construction workers, I'm sure there's various factors as to why there's difficulties in bringing them into Australia, but would one of them be pressures from the domestic construction industry or unions by any chance? I think that is a factor. So the government announced a range of reforms last year about temporary skilled migration. So for thinking about who can come here right now and help to build houses that we need as quickly as possible, that's bringing in temporary visa holders that are skilled under the temporary skill shortage program. But the construction workers actually make up a fairly small proportion of that program. But the government is introducing some reforms around this area over the next year or so. But some of those changes do appear to be a bit corrupted by pressures from probably the union movement who are trying to protect jobs in the industry. So the government said they're moving to a a situation where people earning above $135,000 can come here under a more streamlined visa system that should be faster and cheaper. People that are earning between $70,000 and $135,000, it's a bit harder for them to come into the country. So a crucial thing is that the government has said people in skilled trades aren't eligible for this faster visa program. So that exemption, I think pretty clearly driven by, I'd say, union pressure to stop these workers coming into competing with high school trades, even though not many trades earn above that $135,000 mark. It's quite a high benchmark. What are some other reforms that you just hadn't mentioned before just to try help out with this issue? So a big one as part of the overall visa reform is to reduce the costs 
sponsoring skilled workers. So currently the employer that sponsors a skilled worker to come to the country has to pay application fees, they have to pay thousands of dollars to a Skilling Australia fund, which is a fund that normally is redirected to training Australians, although it's not really that clear where the money can go. So we think the visa fees should be reformed, and that's one barrier that employers do cite in terms of stopping them bringing workers in. Another one is recognising qualifications and trades. So typically for a skilled worker to come to the country, they face a two-step process to get their skills and qualifications recognised. Firstly, to get their visa, to prove they work in an area of shortage, and then secondly, to get their qualifications approved by the relevant body. This can be very costly, can also take a long time. So a recent review of the migration system last year found that for some skilled trades, it can cost $9,000 and up to 18 months to get their qualifications recognised. This is going to be a, a complex and difficult process to simplify that skills recognition process, but it's really important, I think, to get people to be able to come here and work in the areas they're qualified in. Are there any other countries out there that you would know of that does it really successfully, like bringing very skilled construction workers into the country and brings it in large numbers that some of their policies mm. could be brought in here? Now, if we look at our more comparable countries, say New Zealand or Canada, the US, our migration system is up there into one of the best performing in the world. We do attract highly skilled, highly talented migrants. So there are some lessons we can learn from overseas. And we currently rely a lot on identifying particular occupations that we define to be as in shortage for a person to come here and migrate and work in those situations. We think that system should be scrapped and it should just be, if an employer can't find a worker here, they're getting offered a job and they're getting paid a, a decent wage, they should be able to come here and work under any occupation. That removes one of the things that slows migration down and I think is affecting our home building and also not just in construction, it's also in things like health and education too. If we're looking at the current housing crisis we're facing, the data shows that it's not really easing up and things aren't looking good in terms of the next one to two years. So things are going to be really tough for renters. So what the government can do in the short term to help renters that are struggling the most is to boost Commonwealth rent assistance. That payment supports people that are renting on fairly low incomes. It's very well targeted. So boosting the supply of housing is a fantastic policy and definitely should be pursued, but it's not going to have an immediate effect on renters. So further boost to Commonwealth rent is the way to go to help renters that are struggling right at the moment. That was Grattan Institute's Trent Wiltshire, ending that story by Tony Pangalewick. Have you checked out The Wire? It's your national current affairs program. The Wire, taking an independent look at what's happening in Australia and around the world. Fresh voices, new points of view, current affairs with a difference. Don't miss The Wire. Daily on community and Indigenous radio across Australia. In the lead up to the next federal budget, many organisations and groups have already made submissions to the government. The Community Broadcasting Association of Australia is seeking an increase of funding in order to implement strategies laid out in Roadmap 2033 pushing for the sector to become more sustainable. National Radio News reporter Georgia Fisher spoke to Rhys Kinane, head of advocacy at the CBAA, about the significance of increasing their funding. Urgent, and um, we've known for a while that government support for community broadcasting has been underfunded. This year, we've brought our sector together, and we're putting in a, a substantial ask this year that wants that aims to put community broadcasting on a sustainable footing into the future. 
Um, and I, I wouldn't say we go cap in hand, but I'd say that uh, you know we represent you know over 450 community stations around the country that deliver over 500 services, and those services reach 4.9 million people every week, and they uh, play a really important role in supporting our communities, and we see government as a real, really important partner in those outcomes. Absolutely. The pleaded government equates to a request of 50% more funding than the sector currently gets. How realistic is that request in the midst of the government's focus on coiling other major economic issues like the cost of living? Look, I think the services that community broadcasters provide are increasingly important and increasingly needed. So we're talking about outcomes for communities here. We're talking about the demand for independent local news going up, particularly in the regions, and that's where over 70% of our broadcasters are. They support communities with increasing disasters that they're facing and the demand on stations is going up in that regard um, where you know, hyper-local information about what's happening at the end of your town or street is really important and help with preparation and recovery. They provide a really important sense of place and connection for Australia's diverse multicultural communities. They support local artists and we're seeing a lot of challenges in the arts sector that community broadcasting assists with. And when we're talking about community broadcasting, it's important to remember that we're talking about 19,000 volunteers across the country and 1,000 staff who provide these services. And they do so because you know, they're passionate about, about their community and, the, and they want to support it. Most definitely. Um, the sheer scale of the funding request suggests that the sector is underfunded indeed like that. How has the sector survived in the face of the current funding decline? Look, it's been really hard. So the, the funding shortfall for community broadcasting is uh, about $9 million on average every year. Those are grants that stations are applying for that communities need that they're not able to get year on year. And the funding for community broadcasting hasn't gone up for about a decade. So if you factor in increasing costs, you'll see that community broadcasting has actually suffered you know, a real cut that has been, you know, really significant $5 million at least less than it would have been if, if funding had been, you know, attached to CPI and going up with increasing costs. The Community Broadcasting Association Australia's news and current affairs profile has been on, undergoing a transformation over the past year or so with a vision to create a unique collaborative way of news affiliates as a third trench in Australia's news and current affairs. How crucial is that extra funding in the context of the network? It's fundamental. The news market in Australia has been, you know, suffering from uh, different businesses pulling out, particularly from regional areas, and and our communities, Australia-wide, are really hungry for local, independent news that they can trust. That's put a lot of demand on community broadcasters to to um, you know increase the news servicing that they provide and. We've had a lot of support from Minister Rowland, the Minister for Communications, who says that community broadcasting has been uh, carrying the load of media diversity in this country, and, and that's true. So you know, a lot of our members, a lot of community broadcasters around the country are really, uh, really keen to fill that void and provide trusted local independent news to their listeners and to the local communities where others won't. How would that extra funding, as you say, transform support for community funding? 
So I think the program is suffering from its efficiency is in decline because there is such a large oversubscription. The demand is not being met. That means we're missing opportunities for stations to grow their services in a sustainable way. Part of our budget ask is not just increasing funding, but it's a changed program to allow for multi-year funding grants that stations can rely on to build their capacity to, to grow their audience and to increase their services. That was CBAA's Head of Advocacy, Rhys Kinane there, ending that story by Georgia Fisher. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jugara countries on which this program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. As always, thank you for the company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.